Good morning. We've been working our way through Philippians and have been surprised by joy as we've done so. Where we find joy in the letter to the Philippians and understanding that Paul's in prison when he writes causes this to be a little surprising. We don't find as much joy in the church at Philippi, though. We find, as we read through, we find evidences of tension. Um, those Paul left in charge are becoming anxious and afraid. We don't exactly know why. We know, though, that they are discouraged and disappointed. And that Paul, when he writes this letter, recognizes that the key to joy consists in them doing something that's very difficult when we are discouraged and disappointed, when we're anxious and afraid. Those are very, it's very easy for us to become self-absorbed and self-obsessed in those times. And what Paul tries to do is get them to understand that the key to joy will rely on them finding a way to shift their attention away from themselves onto the needs of others. Let's read uh, Romans, Philippians chapter 2. It's in your worship folder. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. When we read through the book of Philippians, the letter, what we find out, there are stress fractures occurring in the church. The leaders are getting stressed out. They sent a gift to Paul when they learned that he was in prison. They sent it by the hand of Epaphroditus. And so they took up an offering, as they had done on other occasions. They entrusted this offering to an individual, and Epaphroditus went from Philippi to where Paul was imprisoned in Rome, I believe. And, um, and in so doing, they also told Epaphroditus what to request of Paul. I think what they probably said is, <clears throat> and by the way, 
we're sending Epaphroditus, and you can keep Epaphroditus there with you because he can minister to your need, because we know that somebody needs to minister to your need. And because Epaphroditus will minister to your need, you can send Timothy back. And we'd like to see Timothy come back. Uh, Timothy had proven worth. He was Paul's associate. And whatever they're facing at Philippi, they think a trade might be good. So we'll trade Epaphroditus for Timothy. Epaphroditus is one of us, but Timothy, he knows a lot. Anybody ever play Red Rover? Remember that? We played Red Rover and went in. So the way Red Rover works is you have two lines of, of kids, and they, and they hold hands. And so then the way we used to do it is everybody would take the name of somebody. You know, Superman went first. Batman went second. Popeye someplace. So, so you'd take a name, and Red Rover, Red Rover, send Popeye right over. And so then what would happen? Then, you know, so we would do that, and we'd call for Popeye, whoever that was, and then would hold hands, and then the person would run. And they would run fast, and the job was to try to break the grip. So if we're holding on, and they run through that, and they break the grip, then if they break the grip, they go back. And yeah, you know, But if they get caught, if they get caught, then they get held. And so the game was you get people, and so finally you capture all the people on the other side of the thing. They kind of, they send Red Rover, Red Rover, send Timothy right over. And they send Epaphroditus to them. Paul's letter then has to explain when an individual comes walking on the path to Philippi, and we're not sure if they were looking or not, they said, oh, man, it's Epaphroditus. What the heck? Oh, wait. And so he has to explain to them why Epaphroditus is coming by and Timothy isn't. Look what he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul needed to head off several misconceptions that they might have gotten because Epaphroditus is walking up the path. Um, Maybe Paul no longer trusts Timothy. And so Timothy might have bugged out because what we find out with Paul, he had people walk with him and were part of his entourage, but one after another, ended up walking away from him. In fact, when he writes Second Timothy, the last letter which we looked at, he said, all have deserted me except for just a handful. It was difficult to follow along with Paul. Life was hard with him. And he understood that. And so what he needed to do is put that to rest. No, it's not that I have um, lost confidence in Timothy and and it's not that Timothy had lost interest in them. They needed to know that, you know, it's not Timothy is resistant because he did feel very strongly toward them. Paul responds by citing in this letter Timothy's genuine concern. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What I want you to understand about Timothy and it's going to be a theme in terms of those 
that Paul points out? Timothy really cares. He really, really cares about these people. He is genuinely concerned for them. It's not just a job to him, it's in his heart. And as far as Paul is concerned, um, that's why Timothy is such a valued associate, because Timothy's genuine concern matches Paul's own. If you put your finger on the pulse of what made Paul Paul, and made Timothy Timothy, and made Jesus Jesus, there was a genuine concern. If you were with them, and you were part of a group that they were serving, what you knew, I don't know much about Paul. Sometimes he says things that are difficult for me, but that guy cares about me. And he'd go to the wall for me. And so would Timothy. That's what, why the disciples loved Jesus as much as they did and why they wanted to remain in his love. Um, Paul says in earlier in Philippians 2, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice, sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Um, well, we have a couple of ways to see Paul. What about Paul? He poured it out. He poured out his life as a sacrifice and service for their faith. Paul poured it out, and Timothy really cared. Um, indirectly, this serves kind of as a between-the-lines challenge. Timothy is genuinely concerned for your welfare, and I have no one else like him who is genuinely concerned um, for your interests, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Um, Timothy was unique because his concerns did not revolve around himself. And there's a little bit of a challenge here because the Philippians, it's certainly they wanted Paul or Timothy to come back. But the reason why? is they weren't thinking of Paul and they weren't thinking of Timothy. They were thinking of themselves. Again, we do that. They felt threatened. And when we feel threatened, we think about ourselves. So what he, Paul is saying, he points out, the thing that makes Timothy valuable to you and to me is that he has a unique ability to not think about what's best for him, but think what's best for others. Would you agree with me? That's a very difficult thing to cultivate especially if there are reasons to be afraid. We naturally, again, we naturally become self-focused when we become afraid. To come to a place, as Paul did, and I, I, we, we can't touch that. Paul was way out ahead, and Timothy was with him. To be afraid, but not to allow that to cause their focus to turn around toward themselves. Paul poured it out. And Timothy really cared. Um, Timothy was valuable to Paul because when he was in prison, Timothy was low-maintenance support. If somebody else came who was not as mature, then Paul would have to attend to them. You ever had that being at a place, maybe you were sick or something like that in the hospital, and you know when there's this individual that comes, they're low-maintenance, and you really can be completely comfortable with them. But when other people visit you don't know as well, Sometimes you're in the hospital, you have to cheer them up. You, you, know, you understand what I mean? You have to make conversation and you don't feel. But then there's some people, if they come, they're low maintenance. And it's really nice to have them along hand, on hand. That's what Timothy was like to Paul. 
He didn't have to put on airs because Timothy really was concerned about Paul, and Paul knew it. Um, and that's why when he was in prison, Timothy, Paul was going to leave prison on this occasion. But the next time he's in prison, when he writes Second Timothy, he's not going to get out. Um, and what he writes is, make an effort to come to me quickly. Uh, when Paul was down, he wanted Timothy by his hand. In helping them to deal with their disappointment then and seeing Epaphroditus, what Paul ends up saying, I want you to remember that I poured it out. And I wanted you to remember that Timothy really cared. And I want you to remember as well that Epaphroditus rolled the dice. Now, look what it says. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul's commendation of Epaphroditus sounds a little bit apologetic because they know what's going to happen. Here comes Epaphroditus, and he has the letter, and Epaphroditus probably is saying, here, this is from Paul, and he wants you to read this when, when he sees them going. And so they said, well, let's, let's go into a living room, and I'll read the letter. And so then they're reading the letter, and they're reading, they're hearing this. And they're hearing about Paul saying, I poured it out, and they're hearing him say, Timothy really cares. And Epaphroditus is saying he rolls the dice. Uh, they might have seemed like a consolation prize, but Paul goes to great pains to point out why he views Epaphroditus, as he does, as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, because like Timothy, Epaphroditus really cares about them. And again, it shouldn't surprise us that the thing that characterizes those who are the most effective servants for Jesus Christ, it's not just how much they know, it's how much they care. And the fact that this care is evidenced and manifested, even when it hurt the one manifesting. Again, that's a high bar, but that is what Paul points out. And this is what he was like and Timothy was like and, and Epaphroditus was like. It says about Epaphroditus, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. The word distressed is a very strong word. Epaphroditus is distressed. In fact, you know when this word is used? It's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's used to that intensity of emotion. Epaphroditus was really concerned about people in Philippi. He, they heard that he was ill. In fact, en route to delivering this letter, Epaphroditus became ill and almost died. And when he knew that the Philippian church heard that he had almost died, he wanted to make sure, I want you to know that I'm okay, and I, I want you to know that I, that, I, that I sent the letter, and I, and I want you to know so bad that I just can't even sleep at night. 
you're on my heart and you're on my mind and I can't get away from it that you might think this when, when this is true. And Paul looks at that and he understands that is a guy that I would choose. Somebody who rolls the dice say, where's roll the dice? When it says he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his, risking his life, that is a gambling term, risking his life. And what it means, again, is a way to think about it to roll the dice. Not a sure thing when you roll the dice. You might come up a winner. You might come up a loser. So then you take a chance. And this is what Epaphroditus did with his life. He, he didn't know what was going to happen. And he wasn't so concerned to save his life that he was unwilling to roll the dice. Who's going to go to bring this letter to Paul? I'll go. And the reason why he went is Epaphroditus said, you know, at some level, I really care for these people. And they want to get a letter there and they want to bring something to Paul. And I want to communicate the concern of these people to Paul. And I want to communicate to Paul, the concern of these people, and I'm not sure what's going to happen, and I'm not sure. It's a long journey, and he did get sick, but he was willing to roll the dice with his life. And that the things that characterize the most effective servants, well, Paul poured it out. And Timothy really cared. And Epaphroditus rolled the dice. Pour it out. Really care. Roll the dice. That's what it means. Those are the cardinal things to be effective servants. It's not really how much you know. It's how much you care. That's the thing that defined Jesus. That's the thing that defined Paul. That's the thing that defined Timothy. That's the thing that defined Epaphroditus. Paul wants to make sure that Epaphroditus was received with the honor he deserved. And I imagine that when they're reading this letter and he says, honor such men, um, I imagine they, <clears throat> they looked over at Epaphroditus and they said, you know, man, I just, I don't know if we gave you the welcome that we should have given you, but I'm reading what Paul is saying, thanks, man. And thanks for caring. And they honored such men because Paul wanted them to honor such people. Honor people who pour it out and really care and roll the dice. You know, this is something that is difficult to embrace, especially when life is disappointing. It's something that AA understands very, very well. What they say is somebody caught in the web of alcoholism, there are 12 steps. And you've got to remember there's a 12th step. If you get to the 11th step, you're one step short. You know what the 12th step is? Read that to you. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. So what is the 12th step? To give it away. And why would you need, why would you want to give it away? Because you care. 
You care. So you don't just hoard recovery, but you try to find ways that you can give it away. You don't just keep it. You give it. Mark did a great job last week talking about how in and out needs to be balanced. The difference between the Sea of Galilee and the, the Dead Sea was the Dead Sea had out. No, the, Red, the, the Sea of Galilee had out, but the Dead Sea only had in, and it just stayed there. And um, we're not supposed to just keep it, but give it away. I guess you know what this means in terms of handling disappointment. And again, this is a long road. This is not something you do tomorrow, but I think what he, Paul would encourage us, he would point out again the individuals that he holds up as our examples, people who pour it out and really care and roll the dice. Um, and what Paul would tell us, pursue usefulness. Pursue usefulness. At the end of the day, what will give joy is not what we've amassed. When we come to the end of our life, the things that we will be aware of are times that we poured it out, times that we really cared, times when we rolled the dice, where we lived not just for ourselves. And you, you guys know what this is like. You do this. It says, seek first his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What does it mean to seek first his kingdom? In the context, what it means, he says, don't worry about food and drink and clothing. Don't worry about food, drink, and clothing. He's got that. He knows that you need stuff to drink. He knows you need stuff to eat. He knows you need stuff to wear. He knows you need a place to live. He knows He knows that. He's got it, got it, got it. So don't be preoccupied with that. But sometimes I think we hear a verse like this and say, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, live one day at a time. We get that, live one day at a time. But then we think, there's, I shouldn't worry about anything. I shouldn't worry about anything. Well, it's interesting. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 11:28. Apart from other things, and he's talking about all the things that happened to him because he was a servant, and he talks all the times he was beaten up and stuff like that, stuff that we're not going to have to face this. Paul had a unique position of authority that required him to go through a lot of stuff. We're not going to have to go through that stuff. However, um, what he says is, apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my... No, I can't, Paul can't be anxious. That's wrong, isn't it? To be anxious? Isn't that a bad thing? Anxiety. Paul have anxiety? Did he? Was that wrong for him to have anxiety? You know why it says don't worry about what you've eat and drink and what you put on? Because you probably you can only worry about one thing. And if you're worrying about that, you can't worry about others. You can't worry about churches. And so with Paul's life, it wasn't don't worry, but trust God for the food, drink, and clothing. 
But Paul didn't leave a, didn't live a, and this is no surprise, is it? A, in the hammock life? Just pass me another cold one, will you? <laughs> no. He, difficult life. And he was anxious. He was worried. I wonder how they're doing in Philippi. And he would talk to God about this stuff. But that was part of the thing, isn't it? It's, you know, you're, you have concerns about people. Not a bad thing to be concerned about people. In fact, it's part of pouring it out. Really caring. Rolling the dice. We care about people. And finding a way to express that practically. Um, to seek his kingdom means to deal with a level of stress, I think. Certainly meant that for Paul. Would you agree? Meant it for Timothy. Meant it for Epaphroditus. Definitely meant it for Jesus. So pursue usefulness. Um, in order to do that, usefulness has got to be cultivated. You know what we tend to say, which is a good thing, Lord, use me. And that might be something you've asked God. Lord, I want you to use me. Lord, use me. Maybe it's something you prayed. Uh, might be, you know, a good prayer might be on this Friday. I don't even know if you need to pray it because whether you pray it or not, you, God's concerned about this for you. Not necessarily that you be used, but first that you be made usable. Made usable. If you're made usable, you're going to be used. What does it mean to be made usable? To be more able to pour it out and really care roll the dice. How do we learn that? Do you agree? That's a challenging thing. In our time and in our day, our lives revolve around ourselves. Again, I'm not blowing up anyone. I'm, I'm with you. I live in the same society that, you know, we just, you know, it's our, you know, and it's our Facebook and our page. And, our, and how is it that we go about developing a capacity to be useful? How does that work? Is it at work? Yes, it is. Is it happening in your life? Is God making you usable? Yeah. But I'm not sure that you recognized, recognize what he's using to do so. Let's look what it says in Hebrews. Um, they're going through a lot of things, as we've talked about before. The first missionaries to the Gentiles were all Jews. And what ended up happening to them? is they ended up being forced out of Jerusalem by persecutions and famines. So here's what happened. When they first came to faith in Christ and people were selling their lands and depositing all the proceeds at the feet of the disciples and it was being, it was like the Rainbow Coalition. It was, it was really exciting at first. At first, it's exciting. But Christian life tends to be like that. In the beginning, it's exciting. All the things that I'm getting, but over time, things started to change in Jerusalem. Famines and persecutions. You know what ended up happening? 
large numbers of Jewish Christians were forced out. Forced out of Jerusalem. And when they did so, they lost their neighborhood and they lost their livelihood. Both. And that might not have been bad at first. At first. You can go to another place and you're making new friends, but then... Okay, so they couldn't get really good jobs, but we can tough it out. We're going to go to heaven. And they did tough it out. And sometimes all they could do was find work with Gentile landowners, which wasn't a great thing. You had to do things you're not supposed to do as a Jew, but they toughed it out. You know what was difficult? That two years became five years. And five years became 10 years, and 10 years became 15 years. And the problem with that is now our kids are growing up. And it was one thing for me to make a decision to follow Christ. But now Abigail and Joshua are adults, and they can't get a job either. And they are going to be consigned to the same life. And that was very difficult. And they were wondering, why do I have to do In fact, what was happening to a number of them? They said, I can't do this any longer. I can't do it. I'm going to go back to the synagogue. I'm going to go back because that's the place where all my social contacts are. That's the place I do business. When you became a Christian, you weren't allowed to go into the synagogue because you were an apostate. And so what some of them were doing is bailing. And I can't do it any longer. I, I'm going back to being a Jew. And, and the writer to the book of the Hebrews is saying, hang in there. Don't go back. Don't go back. They're saying, why should I endure? Why should I endure this stuff? And then he says, it's for discipline that you endure. We've, kind of, we've talked about the difference between discipline and punishment. Right? The motive and the focus of discipline and punishment are very different. The motive, let's like focus first. The focus of punishment is on what you did wrong. So if you're being punished, the focus is on what you did wrong and that you have to pay back. You have to pay back your debt. You have to balance the scale. That's the focus of punishment. But the focus of discipline is not on what you did wrong. It's on what you will do right. When discipline is administered properly, again, sometimes as parents, we don't do it that well. Um, we think about, um, well, we think about, you made me mad and I'm going to, what discipline is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about consequences that allow children to learn the right thing, to do the right thing. So its focus is on the future. That's the focus of God's discipline. Just so you know, God never gets confused. What he says, I will be helios to your transgressions. Now, what that means, helios, again, we talk about that word. It means to be gracious, favorable, benevolent, and cheerful. This is what it means. God will not subject you to pain in order to get back at you for sinning. He will not do that. Because if God's going to get back at us for sinning, we're not going to get a pimple on the end of our nose. 
The wages of sin is death, not a broken arm, and not a job loss. And so if God's going to get back at us for sinning, he's going to take us out. But he doesn't do that. He is helios to our unrighteousness. They say, okay, okay, Mike, if that's true, so God's not punishing me, why am I going through what I'm going through? Why? Why is my family like it is? Why is my job like it is? Why is my health like it is? Why is my life like it is? God's got to be paying me back. No, he isn't. Why do I have to endure? It's for discipline that you endure. And discipline is not about the past. It's about the future. And the motive of punishment is anger and wrath. But the motive of discipline is love. That's what it says here. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. Say, Mike, why am I going through what I'm going through? Because you're his daughter. That's why. And you're his son. God does not lead strangers into the wilderness. Only sons and daughters. And the wilderness is not a pleasant place. But God never leads a stranger there. It's always a child of his. To teach them things. To teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone, but everything proceeds from his mouth. Um, what says God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? How many of you were never disciplined by your mom and dad? Never disciplined by them. I remember once, once discipline in my family, this, I'll never forget this. I had a bad habit, bad habit. Kids, put your fingers in your ears. I don't want you to hear this. I never wanted to get a glass. So there's pop in a two-liter bottle. And you'd think that it would be so simple. Get the glass, pour it in the glass, put the cup. And you try not to, okay, no, listen, I didn't put my whole mouth on the thing because you know what happens to that. Then you have loogies that end up, at the, and then you don't want there to be evidence of that. So you just have to sip your... <laughs> Of course, I never do this anymore. <laughs> and so you have to kind of, you can't put your mouth over the entire thing. You have to kind of put it halfway up so that nothing backwashes anymore. I've heard that. I've heard that that's the way, the way you do it. And so my mother, once she caught me, so my, and this is what she made me do, no joke. She made me pour out the pop. You just drank. <laughs> okay. And that was my punishment. Okay, now you pour the rest of that out. Okay, Ma, that's what you got. Uh, there were some other punishments that weren't so easy. Anyways, disciplines, punishments. I'm not sure what it was. <laughs> anyway, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It says, beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, are disciplined, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which, without which one will, no one will see the Lord. You know what holiness is about? When it talks about holiness, what do you think of when you think of holiness? You don't always think of usefulness, do you? Holiness is people who read the Bible a lot and pray. Those, okay. Do you know what holiness here is? It says, people who are holy lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees, make straight paths for the feet. And it's not talking about themselves. We tend to think of holiness being in front. You know, the, you know, the person who does it all right. And they kind of forge ahead and they read the Bible more and they pray more and they give more. And Okay, that might be. But you know what it indicates here? Holiness is not practiced in front of people. In fact, you know what a holiness is about? It's about seeing those who are lagging behind. Holiness is evidenced in the rear of the crowd, not to the front of the crowd. It notices the people who are falling behind. And the reason why it points this out, that these individuals to whom this letter is written, when some of them are leaving and are abandoning ship, they say it's too hard. The ones who are staying, their attitude was, (laughs) wimp, couldn't cut it. Couldn't, they just couldn't hack it, didn't have it in them. And, okay, good riddance to bad rubbish. Yeah. We're as best as suits. It's going to be a long eternity. Um, and you know what the writer to the book of Hebrews is saying? Holiness is not done out here. It's done back there. Go get them. Why should I go get them? Because you care about them. You're willing to pour it out and really care willing to roll the dice. You go back, and it's not fun. But you try to, come on, man, don't go back there. There's, it's, there's not, that's not what you're going to find what you're looking for. That's what he's trying to encourage in the letter. Holiness is about what you do for others. This kind of concern is what marked Jesus. So strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you understand what holiness looks like now? Holiness? Do you know what holiness looks like? It's, it's what happens back there with individuals who are tired and weary. And somebody is putting their stuff aside. They're taking time. Time that they could use for other things. For things that might be enjoyable. And they're setting it aside because they really care. And so what they do, they go back and they say, let me walk with you. Let me help you along. That's, that's holiness. That's holiness. Well, that was Jesus. And that was Paul. And that was Timothy. And that was Epaphroditus. What they did, how they expressed holiness. Holiness does not mean you do it well and say it right. Holiness does not mean that you do it well and say it right. What does it mean? You know what it means by now, don't you? What holiness means? You pour it out, you really care, and you roll the dice. That's what it means to be holy. Um, God is good at developing holiness, usefulness. 
if it's a discipline that you would have to endure, God is treating you as sons. Um, you're going through things that are difficult, things that you have to endure. Why is this happening to you? Has God forgotten you? He's being a parent, and he's treating you as a son and a daughter. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. The lesson to, that we learn to bring us to a place where we can be useful is not an easy lesson to learn. It involves being in places where we don't get what we want. And we learn that we can live without getting what we want. Now again, again, be, mm, it's not that you don't take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself. But there's a growing capacity to not just, you don't just have to do what benefits you. Again, we have a long way to go. In this country, it's very difficult for us to put other people first. Would you agree with me? Really, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not up here with a long bony finger pointing at you. Believe me. Believe me. But when we look at what it means to be holy, that is what it means to put other people first. That's a difficult thing. So you say, okay, Mike, what do I do then? What do I do? I'm going to tell you to do two things. Two things. Number one, um, learn to be still before God. Learn to be still before God. What do you mean? Be still. What should I, what should I look at? Look at his commitments to you. His commitments. If you haven't gone through 40 years of temple, go back through it. Why? Because we did it here? No, 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 no. Look at promises, look at commitments, because that is what gives you the sense of being able to tough it out because you know he's with you. So look at his commitments. Be still before him. Be honest before him as well. God, this is hard. Thanks that you say you see me. You sympathize with me. I, I look at these things. I'm in places where I might not have, I have what I don't want. I'm not doing what I, I do what I don't want and I don't feel what I want to feel. Anybody ever get that? You have what you don't want to have, you do what you don't want to do, you feel what you don't want to feel. Anybody? Anybody out there experience anything like that? And in those places, our tendency is to, well, not to be still and sometimes not to be honest. In that place we say, God, thank you. And that's not real. Again, be thankful, but be honest. God, it's hard right now. I'm going through things that don't make me feel very comfortable. Be still. Thank you that you say you see me. I think about these things. I encourage you to do the same. I think about you see me, you sympathize with me, you deal gently with me. I think about those things just about every day. You see me. You understand why I'm upset. You understand why I feel this way and do that. Why... I want to have this, but I have this. You see me. You understand me. You sympathize with me. Jesus understands what it's like not to have what you want to have, do what you want to do, and feel what you want to feel. He understands that, and he sympathizes with you. He sympathizes. Here's the, here's the thing that always gets me. You see me. You sympathize with me. You deal gently with me. When God looks at you, his eyes are not bugging out, and he's not going, again, I told you what my discipline in my house was three, three things together. There was a sound, there was a breath, and there was a, a turn of the head. My dad was a pro at it. Was, I, I try to do it. I, 
<laughs> you, see, it's kind of, you kind of have to get the, the expulsion of air. And have to be, you, have to, you have to do that. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Um, in the midst of difficulties, he wants us to understand that he deals gently with you. God's eyes are not bugging out when they look at you. He's not shaking his head and going, He is gentle with you. He's not frightened for you. He's not frightened. And he's not angry. He's direct and compassionate. But he's looking at you. And what he wants you to do is be still and Speak freely with him. Speak freely with him. Do prayers. Come on up, Devin. We're going to sing a closing song. Um, do prayers. And there's different prayers that we might, you might like. Do those. I learned a lot of them growing up. But don't negate the need to be honest before him. Be still before him. Think about his commitments. But then open your heart before him and tell him about what you need. It says, if we do so, and we'll look at this verse in a couple of weeks, when to the church at Philippi, what he says is, the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your heart and mind and help you to focus on Christ, help you to bring about the ability to, well, Pour it out and really care and roll the dice. God's peace allows you to do that. And as you are still before him, speak freely to him. Develop that ability. It'll increase the usefulness quotient in your life. Again, it won't happen quickly. But God's really good at developing it. Speak freely with him. Be still before him. I pray for us. God, thanks for putting down in your word the things that characterized servants who served you with distinction. And it gives us a vision for what you'd have us to be. Individuals who don't necessarily just do what's best for us, but what's best for others. Again, that's a very challenging thing. We can do that, but sometimes if it's done out of resentment or remorse, it doesn't work. It's got to be free, and that's got to be based in commitments. We've got to be able to talk to you to get your peace. But as we do that, slowly, surely, we develop a bigger heart. It doesn't happen overnight. Slowly, a greater capacity to serve you the way you served when you were here. Would you help us to be like you? Slowly transform us into your image. Um, Jesus' name, amen.